Hello, welcome to episode two of the Football Think Tank podcast. I'm your host, Dan Hatman. Today's topic is mental aptitude. Mental aptitude is an umbrella term that we hear a lot within the NFL. It has a lot of sub-traits, processing speed, football acumen, intelligence, character, personality. All of these things can be factored in to mental aptitude. So our exploration today is going to be around how do we define these sub-traits, how can you measure them, and how can teams apply these processes to improving their selection of players and overall trying to put together a better championship roster. Very happy uh, to share this panel uh, with some distinguished guests. I want to start with Brian Decker. Brian is a career Army Forces officer whose final assignment in the U.S. Army Special Forces was the commanding officer of Special Forces Assessment and Selection. He was responsible for leading a 75-person team in developing, resourcing, and executing the Army Special Forces Talent Acquisition Strategy, and it was later hired uh, by the Cleveland Browns to execute in a similar fashion for them. Second guest, Scott Goldman, who is the Director of Performance Psychology at the University of Michigan in their athletic department and was recently in a similar role with the University of Arizona. He's also the creator of the Athletic Intelligence Quotient, or AIQ, which is an intelligence test that measures innate cognitive abilities that are most utilized in attaining, developing, and applying athletic skills, strategies, and tactics. We also have Steve Guerra, a former officer in the United States Marine Corps, who's served as the head of innovation for the Cleveland Browns. Before that, was an assistant coach and an analyst for the San Diego Chargers. Currently runs Winning Algorithms Incorporated and advises elite organizations across the globe in strategy, structure, culture, leadership, and performance science. And finally, Danny Tuccio, who has a master's in sports psychology from the University of Florida, worked heavily on how athletes cope with stress of balancing school and sport and also in the reliability and validity of psychological measurement so with that let's dive into our conversation a couple weeks ago i feel like it was you and uh, ryan riddle former cal and nfl player were having a conversation about mental aptitude uh, about the combine about things like situa- situational awareness and the opportunity to potentially uh, measure that you know, what kind of spurred that conversation on between you guys, um, you know, and, and where are your general feelings on the topic? Um, well, I think that particular day, uh, the thing that spurred it on was that uh, we were, I guess this was just after the draft, maybe, or before. I forget exactly when it was, but it was around draft time, and uh, and I'm... I come, you know, as as some of the other panelists here, I come from more of a sports psychology background, and it was always it was always interesting to me as a, a layperson who's not really in the know as to how the NFL uh, measures and utilizes uh, things related to psychology, uh, how exactly they they uh, deal with this stuff in the draft, and how much of you know analyzing prospects in the draft process involves analyzing their mental aptitude. And uh, Ryan and I got into a conversation. Ryan, a former NFL player himself, so it was good to be able to talk to him. And uh, we essentially just talked, I think, mostly, like you mentioned, about situational situational awareness and 
general things about how you know what percentage of being a you know um, uh, elite NFL performer uh, is physical versus mental. Um, I think we talked a bit about reaction time. Um, it was it was a good conversation uh, that I learned a lot from from him. Um, but it was just it was more I think general than anything specific. Just learning about what makes an elite athlete, what kind of mindset NFL players have to have to succeed, um, and so that that was really the the uh, general okay. description of that conversation. I'm yeah. sure we can talk more, in more detail as the conversation goes on. Absolutely. Here. Well, that's that's exactly where we need to go. I want to actually pivot over to Steve here. Uh, you've been with a couple of NFL organizations. And from your perspective, how far down this proverbial rabbit hole do you think teams get uh, when trying to study between the ears? What kind of things have you uh, observed organizations uh, trying to measure? Well, yeah, so I think the main thing that people have to understand about the NFL is that there's a lot of variance from team to team, frankly. Um, you know, there are some teams that do a lot of work um, as far as using psycho, you know, measurements and um, everything from, you know, all the different tests that people hear about, TAP, HRT, and then there's a whole litany of other ones um, that are being sold specifically for the NFL and specifically for um uh, you know, football and for sports. And then there's a whole host of, you know, measurement tools that are, are used just in general um, talent assessment and in, uh, you know, looking at how people can succeed or fail in specific, um, you know, industries. Uh, so, you know, honestly, there's just, you know, inside of the NFL, there's just a tremendous amount of variance because some teams do a lot and some teams do very little. Um, there are some teams that, you know, don't that just like scratch the surface into psychology and into using any sort of formal testing. Um, there, there are teams that are still doing just basic Google searches, and that's how they do a lot of their um, background checks. And they do a lot of their um, their actual one on one assessments of somebody's ability, cognitive ability or their ability to cope inside of a specific culture, or a specific team, et cetera, et cetera. You got I mean, a lot of it's really still for a lot of teams predicated on the interview process um, and having non, you know, having really coaches and coaches and scouts who really understand football, but may not necessarily understand the inner workings of the human brain and the human mind and overall psychology, um, who are still making decisions, you know, without, you know, really any sort of like upskilling. I think that you can actually get from some of the sciences and some of the different technologies that are coming out now. Um, and I think that, you know, at the same time, there are other teams that are really going really far down the rabbit hole and creating bespoke systems and bespoke um, interview platforms for their specific teams. And they're not only trying to get players who fit their specific team makeup and what they want their team to be all about, but also the communities that they live in. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, I mean, it, it's just because there's so much variance, there's no one, you know, there's not one stop solution that's really going to be, you know, able you know, to shoot at them, uh, to be able to put into the marketplace and for these different teams to use um, in concert or together. So overall, I mean, it's just, there's just so much variance in what's going on with all the different teams that it's really hard to say this team's doing it better than this team and this team's doing it better than that team. Um, just because you can't really normalize and really compare them um, up to one another. So it's still very much an evolving space. 
right. is, uh, is really, at the end of the day, is really the main point. I mean, we're still just starting to scratch the sur- surface of what we even understand about talent assessment inside the NFL. Um, and you have some teams that are exploring it vigorously and other teams that are, you know, content with keeping the status quo. Well, I think, Scott, it's a great time to pull you in. One of the things that fascinates me, like I said, that this term mental aptitude to me is, is kind of an umbrella that on the personnel side we use to capture a variety of things, whether it be personality, the ability to fit in uh, with our unit or our community, the ability to take the coaching we expect to be presented. Uh, we have personality and, and off-field character type things. Uh, but one of the areas that you've explored, and we've had some conversations about this in the past, is, is a difference between intelligence, uh, which you've defined as more stable, versus some of the personality things. What I'd like to do with you here is kind of split out sub-traits. You know, if we had this umbrella term of mental aptitude, what are the areas underneath that that you would consider? Yeah, I, I mean, if we can just take a step back, because I think your statement is very rich in content. Um, it is interesting, almost like watching an episode of Jeopardy. You have all these very measurable categories, and then they always throw this one at the end called potpourri. And I think the mental aptitude, psychological um, performance, science, like the the terminology often seems to be interchangeable, but fundamentally, it almost becomes uh, a nebulous data dump at the end of of the the it's the line item that's closest to Alex Trebek, right? And and so, one of the things that that I did is I created a test called Athletic Intelligence Quotient or the AIQ, and it was really specific in its design to kind of pull one of the elements of that grab bag potpourri category and make it a measurable. So it's, it's, it's really about, if you think about, we measure, we have concrete and objective ways of measuring speed and strength, and we can debate how effective those are, but at least they're things you can hang your hat on. They are a concrete time that accurately reflects the amount of um, how fast someone covered a certain distance, things like that. So we have we have speed, we have strength, we have hand size, and, and you know, as as we all know on this panel, sports is an unsolvable puzzle, and really, what we collectively are doing in this facet of the game is trying to be curators of knowledge so that we can make more well-informed decisions and and, um, mitigate risk. So to now kind of answer your question more specifically, the, what once was perceived as immeasurable, the idea of how well does someone process information or think about the game has now become a concrete and measurable item and that's what the athletic intelligence captures so you would immediately underneath that that potpourri bucket that we're using here uh point towards this this processing which is based on intelligence is one of the tenants that could could filter into this what are a couple other areas that you think end up in this uh potpourri box that we just we talk about 
Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you made the reference of a rabbit hole. I mean, here's where we can go down the deepest dive. I have seen all kinds of things that are out there. And, and unfortunately, some of it is, is um, very creative, I, I think is the nicest way to put it, or, or it has a little bit of element of reminiscence of snake oil. But I mean, I've seen things where people have offered to um, collect... Uh, information based off of language preference. I have seen people do things that are personality captures, which, um, you know, are not static or stable traits. If you think about personality of how people are at the age of 18 versus how they might be at the age of 21 or going from being broke to now being a multimillionaire or becoming a father for the first time or, or a husband, um, things like that are, are moving from their hometown to a major city. Uh, so, so I think we could, you know, I, the last time I, I kind of took a look at this and I wouldn't, I wouldn't hang my hat on this number, but there was up to about 75 different captures that was in this potpourri category. Again, I tend to really try to pull out and focus on intelligence, which is a genetically stable trait that is as concrete as height, weight, speed, something you really can bank on. So, Brian, I want to pull you in. You know, your background coming from uh, Army Special Forces, you know, obviously intriguing to many. What are the things outside of, you know, intelligence? So, obviously, Scott's pointing to that. And one of the issues that we've had in the football space is the, the biggest measure of quote-unquote intelligence that we've leaned on is the wonderlick. And anybody that's done any research on that is uncovered. There's no predictive validity in terms of the wonderlick and what it does on the field, right? Because it's not a measure of football acumen um, or not necessarily the, the speed of your processing. But what things outside of intelligence did you find in, in your experience um, to be stronger predictors of performance especially in these team settings. You know, Dan, I'd like to take a second just to back up a little bit because I think it's to kind of allude to what Scott said, you know, one of the problems we have in this space is that the water is very muddy. Um, what we've done is we, uh, the people who are decision makers, haven't identified requirements and then went out and found and fashioned tools to answer their questions. And many times, they are these people bringing these items in from the outside and trying to deliver them to teams and teams don't know how to, you know, there's, there's varying degrees of, you know, reliability and validity associated with these instruments. And even furthermore, even how, once you answer that question, what, what do you have? I always think we should be looking at three questions when we're looking at, you know, something in this space and is, you know, are we asking the right questions? Are we gathering good information? And then once we got good information, do we, do we know how to use this information to good decision, make good decisions? And so I think Scott's, right, you know, Scott's work on intelligence, and you know, I, I think the intelligence is, is very important. You mentioned the Wonderlick. The Wonderlick has done more to set back the study of intelligence in sports than probably any other thing out there. It's muddied the water because it's not really designed to measure the types of intelligence that are going to be predictive of success. Now, I don't want to speak to what Scott tests, but, you know, the work that I've done, and, and let me caveat this by saying that my understanding of this field is from that of a, of a decision maker, meaning I understand what it measures and how to kind of put it together to make a holistic evaluation. Uh, that The Wonderlick has really set it back because it, it's measuring a, 
academic achievement. In many ways, I think it's more of a crystallized form of intelligence or, you know, and it's very sensitive academic achievement. Whereas most of the things that are going to be more predictive success in that intelligence space are going to have this nonverbal or performance type IQ where you see uh, speed of processing, the ability to simplify, the ability to visually abstract, you know, pattern recognition and see the big picture. So there's the one piece with the intelligence that I think is very, very important. If you were to ask me to kind of bring something else in there along with it that I see pair up with it that's really helpful, it's, it's, it's conscientiousness. Uh, you know, it's one of the personality, big five personality types. A person who's conscientious is going to be focused. They're going to be goal-driven. They're going to be focused on work quality. So when you control and make all else equal, when you have a person that is has high cognitive ability and they have their strong in conscientiousness relative to the norm, I think you have the beginnings of what I believe are the foundation of, of a high performance mindset. And when I say high performance mindset, you know, kind of borrowing from uh, Angela Duckworth and her model it, but I think the high performance mindset allows you to translate talent into skill and skill into performance. So, Danny, I think this is a good place to, to come in. One of the parts of your conversation with Ryan, and again, it was uh, former NFL player Ryan Riddle, was the idea of what can production on the field potentially tell us? And you've done work in the past um, in terms of reliability and validity and measurement. So one of the big things for me is context, right? Inside the academy, we're constantly pushing our guys on the context and look back on what Brian just said. His second point was gathering good information. So what kind of things uh, kind of strike you in terms of those who would be relying on the production on field? And we're, I guess, talking about either high school to college as a projection or, or college to the pro as a projection. What kind of things do you need to control for to try to isolate you know, an individual's contributions? Well, I'm going to go a little more uh, big picture than that and kind of piggyback off of what everybody's been saying here. Uh, just in terms of the fact that, to me, it's mind-boggling as an outsider. I mean, everybody else here is more inside than I am. Um, as an outsider, that you have a multi-billion dollar industry where teams are you know, identifying assets and investing a ton of money on assets. And it seems like they're not using validated or reliable tools a lot of the time. And I've heard the word bespoke a little bit ago. Uh, it's just mind-boggling to me. And I think that that's, if I'm hearing things right, that's really what needs to happen. Uh, even before you start talking about production and how you can look at um, you know, performance statistics of the players on the field and what they're doing and and learning about the reliability and validity of those in terms of measures of performance. Um, before you even get to that, uh, if you're going to be linking psychological measures or the AIQ or, or all that kind of stuff um, to performance, you got to validate that stuff first. And to me, it, it reminds me a lot of like how medicine used to be back at the turn of the 20th century where people were just bloodletting and nobody knew anything. And all of a sudden, you you know, you people started doing you know random uh, double blind studies and and medicine was revolutionized because people started caring about the uh, reliability and validity of what they were doing uh and i feel like that's sounds to me like that's where we need to be uh in terms of um the measures that we're using to test prospective athletes even before you get to the whole okay let's link it to outcome measures related to performance on the field Okay. Yeah, B.F. Skinner gave a great um, 
made a great comment during his presidential address to the American Psych Association where he said, we need to let our science catch up to our practice. You know, we got to walk before we run. Uh, it's interesting because when, when, when I developed the AIQ, my partner and I, his name's Jim Bowman, when Jim Bowman and I developed the AIQ, we actually spent about 16 years in its construction um, following the Cattell-Horn-Carroll theory of intelligence and really making sure that our our, our iterator reliability, our reliability, our validity, our construct validity, all of it was comp- incredibly sound before we even brought it to market and, um, and, and really made sure that we were accurately capturing the data that we claimed we were. Um, a second point that's been kind of bounced around the panel, which I think is a really interesting discussion is, you know, analytics and on-field performance. A lot of times when I'm dialoguing with GMs, I'll make the reference about how, you know, the beautiful thing about sports is it is an unsolvable puzzle. It's like the stock market. It's a living, breathing organism that fluctuates and is fluid. And that's what's so nice because if we had all of the analytics we could capture and have some level of definitiveness, it actually would be the death of sport because you would just go to Vegas and put your money down on, you know, the team that has the most variables that we know impact winning. Now, with that said, um, something that we're real proud of with the AIQ camp is we've got a fairly large sample of elite caliber athletes. That's the only people we've tested. Major League Baseball, NBA, NFL, Olympics, and, uh, you know, D1 colleges. And and our sample size is nice and stable. In fact, our NFL sample size, just as a specific um, subgroup is large enough where we've now collected some really interesting um, relationships with on-field performance. And to my knowledge, it's the only test out there that has significant correlation. And notice I'm not talking prediction because that, that's, a, that's a different beast, but we have significant correlation with some of our indices and on-field performance. And it's the only test I've come across that actually has that. So, Scott, let me kind of push you further uh, in a different direction. So how do, how do these, um, you know, Brian brought up conscientiousness, the, the high-performance mindset, a focus on work quality, which clearly, you know, w- would make sense in terms of an individual maximizing physical gifts. How, do this, how does this combine or compare or contrast to what you guys have been working on with the IAQ? Well, you know, I think it goes back to assessing talent, whether that's in sports or the military or um, police officers, firefighters, airline pilots, and, and whatnot is there is as much art as there is science to to really kind of crafting what mechanisms are most important. What I think is kind of interesting to your question is if we're watching the 40-yard dash at the combine, people do not compare wide receivers to offensive linemen because their times are going to be so different. But what's interesting to me is when we go back to the the Jeopardy potpourri category, everybody just naturally assumes that those things are that they're universal. And you know, you might want a wide receiver to be this kind of mindset, or you might want an offensive lineman to have that kind of characteristic. And, and it might be not just so general to a position, but also that position underneath that coach's philosophy. So I really try to focus when I'm working with um, professional teams is about really understanding what your system is and what your system's needs are and then finding the best fit. And I think that's where analytics can be a real 
a real wonderful bridge because if you're asking an offensive lineman to engage in a task that relies on the speed of a wide receiver, I think you're setting everybody up for failure. And because that potpourri category is not always or easily visible, it becomes um, really ripe for people to make an erroneous conclusion. Fair enough. Well, Steve, I think this is a, a place I want to come back to an, an earlier um, term you brought up, the bespoke systems. And in your work over the last few years, you know, attacking things around culture and, and structure and leadership, if I was to say, how would you want to see a, a, an NFL team, you know, as you're advising them, how would you advise them to step forward into these arenas what what is the the 101 step for a team that's doing nothing besides applying the wonder lake and their their scouts kind of thumbs up or thumbs down whether or not they think the kid's tough or works hard or what have you where's the next area they can go what's the low-hanging fruit yeah i mean the low-hanging fruit honestly is in educating um the decision makers you know, first and foremost, like upskilling them is the lowest hanging fruit. It's not in trying to find, okay, these are the, we want to do these five tests. We want to, you know, have this type of structure, X, Y, and Z. The lowest hanging fruit is getting everyone on the same page so that they can then start to have a more meaningful conversation around what are the right tests that we should be giving to our prospective um, players. What are the, what is the right system for us to implement here? Because, the biggest issue with, you know, um, in the NFL is, is honestly is the schedule, is the lack of amount of time you have to get anything substantially, you know, anything of substance, you know, completed. All right. A lot of these, you know, really robust and validated um, psychological tests take anywhere between two hours or more. Um, when you're interviewing 60 athletes over the course of, you know, a couple different weeks, um, you just don't necessarily have that amount of time to actually sit down and, and do a robust test on every single one of them. Um, that is that is definitely a limiting factor um, in the way that the entire process kind of rolls out. So honestly, I mean, if you can, the way the way that we normally work with, you know, our with the teams that we um, currently advise is is we typically do it from a perspective of trying to educate the coaches, trying to educate the general managers and the scouts, and trying to get a system in place for them that is achievable and applicable inside of their own environment. But making sure that that system is also rigorous and has been validated outside of football, because there are a lot of really poor metrics that are being used and poor tests that are being used, and it's not necessarily um, you know to, to talk about something that I addressed earlier when I say bespoke. For a team, it's not necessarily that they just create their own system, or that they create their own test, and that it's an unvalidated test, and it's not a rigorous test for um, testing a player's intelligence, um, testing their grit, testing all these different you know things that we're all trying to test and look for. It's it's a bespoke collection of validated measurements that are then brought to bear in a systematic way, so that you know this team can actually get to the point where you know. Hopefully, a lot of the teams are trying to actually, that I work with at least, are trying to get to the point where they are looking at wide receivers differently than they're looking at offensive linemen, defensive linemen, cornerbacks, et cetera, et cetera. There are some common characteristics that you want, but then when you start talking about football intelligence and football awareness, which when you suss the difference out between those two things, just just getting you know um, GMs and scouts and 
coaches to understand the difference between awareness and intelligence is really important. Um, you know, it's just really, I mean, it's, it's about building that holistic system that accounts for all the different components of your entire scouting umbrella. Um, because like just, just to, you know, kind of really even, you know, use another analogy here. One of the biggest issues that I've had when we're working with any sort of team, whether that be in um, the NFL or some of the work I've, I've done over in the English Premier League, is the difference between athletic ability and technical skill. You know, those two things are very, very different. Um, they actually they interplay with each other and there's overlap. But it's the same thing with awareness, intelligence, and the way that the mind works. You know, you can be really technically proficient at something, but you may not necessarily have the best athletic ability in the world. Um, and so being able to really parse all these different overlapping variables from one another is, is really important. And, and, you don't, you, and you will never get there unless you really educate the decision makers and get them into a mindset where they're willing to create um, a system that works for them. So let me push that just a step farther. You brought up scheduling issues, and you were talking more relative to the application of these individual tests to your potential candidate pool as you're moving forward. But I'm actually interested in your perspective on this. The actual layout of the 12-month calendar and the implementation of new processes, to me, uh, both having worked for three different NFL organizations, a college program, and having run a company looking to change mindsets and processes for individual teams this gap that we're sitting in right now so it's it's july 15th and decision makers are taking a much needed break they finished up their otas and mini camps uh approximately three four weeks ago this is their month to actually go see their family before camp opens you know in approximately seven days or so seven to ten days for different teams and they get rolling again so what difficulties have you seen in the application of potentially improving process just from the standpoint of by the time you finish the draft, get your 90-man roster in, you're doing mini camps, you're trying to get out the door, people are throwing all these ideas at you for things that you can change, but by the time you hit camp, you usually like to have everything firing in the same direction. How does the 12-month calendar play into all this? Yeah, I mean, it makes it really difficult. And it's honestly, you know, the, the 12-month calendar, we, we've kind of become slaves to it inside the NFL rather than actually, you know, changing the conversation to the point where we're really kind of controlling it. Um, you know, no, there's never a good time to implement anything. There's never a good time to change a process, and there's never really a good time to do any sort of R&D, some real R&D. Um, and part of the issue, too, is that you have – you have to really balance as a general manager and as a scout and as a head coach, you really also have to balance the tension between being focused and being very, very myopic and being an absolute expert in the one thing that you were hired to do, which is to select players or to call football plays versus being a person who's going to go out and do a lot of research and development and a lot of professional development on your own. It's a hard thing for people to balance um, because if you do too much of one or the other, then you, either you, you're missing things that are being done in research and development because you're too myopic and too focused on your job, or if you're out there looking at every bright and shiny object, you're spending too much time doing that and you're not spending enough time doing your job. And the way that the calendar works is it just exacerbates that entire dynamic really is what it does is because it really pushes people into one camp or the other um, and typically the camp that it pushes them into is the uber focus on what your specific job is 
um, as far as either call, you know trying to dial up new plays in the offseason. I mean, most coaches, you know, the amount of time that coaches use um, during the offseason in revamping their playbook, I mean, it's a tremendous amount of time. It's any, typically anywhere between four to eight weeks where you're actually reconfiguring the way that you know you're going to call plays on a year-in year-out basis um, and trying to learn more trying to do more assessments on that now if you start layering in you know into that into that work cycle now we also have to do a full evaluation on how we're going to look at analytics we're going to look at sports psychology we're going to look at sports science we're going to look at all these new things in all honesty we're at the point now where you have every single decision maker inside the NFL. I, I mean, I think most of them are absolutely drowning in information and starving for real intelligence. This is why you end up seeing a lot of these books that you know get written that all of a sudden become really big fads inside the NFL for anywhere between two to three, four or five years. Um, number of years ago it was Danny Coyle's Talent Code which is a great book. Danny's a great author, he's actually a friend of mine and I think it's he's what he put forth is a really great, you know, um, premise for how you actually develop talent. And right now it's grit and grit will be the big book and it has been the big concept in the NFL for the last um, 18 months and it will probably be a, you know the big concept for about another year and then something else will replace it. And the reason why, you know, these you know those types of books and these types of ideas become, you know, such a, you know, uh, kind of like a lightning point in the NFL is because the decision makers don't have time to do deep dives. They only have time to get simple concepts and to understand simple concepts and then try and think about how they can actually implement those inside of what they're currently doing. Um, a lot of times you just don't have the time to actually do a full assessment on your um, scouting process or your coaching process to the point where you can completely do um, wholesale changes. It's really the calendar, you know, it forces everyone to just do small nudges over time. And sometimes small nudges aren't good enough, especially when you're running billion dollar teams. I love it. Well, Brian, let me bring you back around here. Um, We've talked about the difference between athletic ability and technical skill. We've talked about the difference between intelligence and situational awareness. I'd love your thoughts on the, those um, those two questions in terms of how decision makers can look between those different um, different traits and obviously look towards measuring and, and putting something together that benefits their organization. Well, I'm going to start, you know, I, th I think Scott hit on something great earlier. You know, it's, it's really, there's a lot of complex interdependencies here. There's a lot of noise in the system, whether it be from the test, the method, the decision, how the information is used. But really, I think you've got to go way far forward in the process and work yourself back. I think one of the things that, as an organization, as you look at this, you have to achieve alignment between these three buckets. And that's your talent acquisition, which is all your scouting activities, talent development, which nobody really has primacy for in the league, and your talent utilization. And those three things have to remain in alignment because then that will create a stable base by when this to start measuring things downstream. I mean, on, anecdotally, I don't know. I've never been inside those organizations, but I only think two teams out there really have that holistic enterprise view. And when a player comes in, they know how to scout for, what, for their team. They know how they're going to develop and know how to utilize them. And that's, I think that's the Patriots and the Seahawks. But so if, I think if you could get those things in alignment, you could stabilize it a bit and you could take some of those things out. You know, if you start thinking about 
thinking about like how how all this stuff kind of comes together. We talked about intelligence and why is it that some people with low intelligence can do really really well, and why some people with their you know the same position can be not as intelligent and you know. You see all this variation. So to me, the one thing I don't think we're considering or we have to isolate in that process is relevant experience. Relevant experience will masquerade as ability. If you come up in a system where you have a lot of relevant experience, like say a pro-style system, you've, you've had to handle a lot of complexities in the line of scrimmage. You've had to read coverages. You blitz recognition. You understand responsibilities. You understand where the pressure's coming from. And you ran a pro-style offense, and you know where, based on those matchups, where your best matchups are going to be, then you're going to be able to move through that process faster than someone that might be much, much smarter than you, but that is playing one of these spread-type systems that isn't giving you the same type of relevant experience. So one of the things to me, I think you have to isolate the relevant experience because you can take a quarterback that's lower on the IQ range and has a lot more relevant experience, and he might be able to play much, much sooner than a person who is exceptionally smart but doesn't have as much relevant experience. Now, it's important to think about those because if you have those two guys, those two guys, the onboarding and the development of them looks a lot, lot different. One guy can play early, and you're just going to be he, you're just going to slowly build him out. The other guy, you're going to have to take him from what he can do, what he's done in the past, and you're slowly going to have to layer that complexity in. So I think that's that's one of the things is to, to really understand how intelligence is going to work. You have to, you're going to have to be able to isolate relevant experience. But you know, the, the really you talked about production, and I wouldn't want to talk about production because it's hard for me to map based on what I've done production to intelligence. But I will tell you where you see intelligence utilized. That if you are reading, if you have a reaction or a read, if you're playing with space, it favors intelligence. So. For example, our li- a lineman, an offensive lineman in the, in the path game where he has to be more reactionary, it favors intelligence. If you look at a free safety versus strong safety, that free safety is dealing with cushion. He likes that space. He wants to be able to read, recognize patterns. He wants to be able to anticipate, diagnose, and jump. A strong safety tends just naturally, they, who naturally gravitate toward these, he tends to be a little bit lower. Same thing with, the same thing with press versus man and zone. The more a player wants space, what he's wanting to do is he's wanting to get back so he can use his mental representations of the game. He's wanting to be able to read, anticipate, diagnose, and faster than, than the, what the play is going on in front of him. To me, I think, you know, as you look at where are there some huge opportunities with all of this stuff is, I don't think as a league, and Steve could probably comment to this as a whole, but I think we have this great body of knowledge that we gain during the assessment process it just never gets plugged into development. We, we should be able to take all this in and basically understanding these profiles and tailor, tailor or individualize this person's onboarding development and have a really good, accurate place from which to start. And I think that kind of goes back to those three spheres again. You know, we have talent acquisition primacy. That's the GM. We have talent utilization at the coach. Nobody has primacy for development. Everybody's got a piece of it, but it's a secondary requirement. And I think that's the part that's missing, that's, mi- that's missing, that if we could marry up, I think some of these measurements that we're doing farther upstream will then become more valuable later on. So that you know hits a, a, a nail uh, on the head that has been thrown in my general direction many times, and that's from Lewis Riddick, who 
constantly preached a philosophy of development plan. So he really crystallized for me what I refer to as evaluation versus valuation. Uh, so for those in the scouting side, the collectors of data on these individuals, these human beings who will be playing this game, we have a, a responsibility to try to find good information to the best of our ability on a, on a large scope of data points that we can possibly collect from you know, their skill sets, both physically and their technical proficiency through their intelligence, through relevant experience, so forth and so on, on these players. And that evaluation process, again, that collection of data is one step. He always hammered home that when it came to valuing the player, ultimately from the purposes of draft, deciding where you would want to take somebody, his philosophy was that you needed to understand how your organization could extract surplus value from that individual, have an actual development plan for them, and that would allow you to properly value them in the draft. So while someone, as you mentioned, might have more relevant experience and might be able to play faster in that scheme that you might presently have, there might be another individual who overall has a more robust skill set, which is where your coaches would like to be, Maybe they've been hamstrung by skill set thus far, and that if you understand what these capabilities are and put together a plan to, as you mentioned, Brian, onboard and develop those individuals, you could extract better value from someone who might be um, undervalued overall. It was kind of a something for me that brought to mind the idea of Moneyball, right? It was that undervalued asset that everybody kept trying to search for in football. I thought this might be one of those opportunities to isolate an undervalued asset and bring them forward in the development process. So what I want to step onto from here, and Steve, you brought this up, the latest, um, I don't want to necessarily go with fad, but we will for the time being. It is the application of grit, and it's a concept that Duckworth forwards from, I mean, she goes back and talks about Aristotle from a conceptual standpoint about the idea that talent itself, the, your, your innate ability doesn't necessarily translate to performance in, in a direct correlation, right? That there are other attributes that a person needs to go through in order to extract that and deliberate performance and, and difficult things, uh, expert, hard coaching, uh, all came up. It, it actually was ironic to see Daniel Chambliss brought up twice in, in her book and that, that's something that I present to our students day one of the academy. He read, did a paper 30 years ago on swimmers. And one of his big takeaways was that he argued talent, as we talk about it, doesn't exist. And that attitude, discipline, and technique were needed to move somebody forward to make that jump. Now, he also argued that the baseline of athletic ability was irrelevant. I disagree. I, I do think that there's a baseline of athletic ability necessary to perform here. But Danny, I wanted to pull you in. You did a lot of work on athletes in coping with balancing school and sport. <laughs> we have another guest on the line here. So Sorry about that. <laughs> no, not a problem. What I wanted to pull you in on here is, is she talks about grit. It was having years of this deliberate practice. So it was stepping into a responsibility, stepping into um, an organization and then executing on that and, and pushing through and looking for multiple years of that kind of performance. So what, what have you uh, learned about 
athletes balancing all these things because as, as Brian brought up, we're looking for people that value work quality, that conscientious, that's that high performance mindset. So what, you know, how do these, these elite athletes that have that mindset balance all this stress that they're facing? Well, um, one of the things that I looked at in my uh, thesis was task and ego orientation, which is kind of akin to the uh, concept of grit and akin to the concept of conscientiousness that was uh, mentioned earlier. And that that was one of the biggest predictors of, of how well uh, athletes are able, able to cope with uh, balancing things in their lives is a, is a task, a high task orientation, meaning that they are, they are, uh, they work towards the task. They they're they're very uh, task driven. Um, they as you know, grid implies they persevere and keep working and keep working. And I think that that I think based on what I've been listening to here, I think we all can agree that that's probably the mo- the one thing. If there was any kind of personality trait that you would want to see in your players, uh, that would be the one. Because if you can have all the athletic ability in the world, but if you don't work hard and you don't uh, persevere in the face of failure, um, you're not going to get anywhere, I don't think, in, in the NFL or in other endeavors. Um, so that, that, that's, that's what I would say is that, that okay. I've found the task orientation. Um, and I think I brought it up when I was talking to Ryan uh, and he agreed that, that that's that's probably the biggest thing. And especially in the NFL, I mean, uh, given how small the margins are between, like, the best players and the worst, you know, the 53rd man and the, and the, and the star, you know, or, or the best teams and, and the worst teams, the, the gap isn't that huge. And so when you have margins that small, working hard and, and you know, spending the time to learn the scheme and, and, and working on your technique and just even if you you know you're not good uh, when you immediately come in the league and but you just keep working on it you know that'll shine through it's it's not to say that and I, I this is something else that I believe that we really haven't talked about yet but but I think that that the whole every, everything about read and react and and uh, and the scheme and fitting into a system and and performing your your task on the field I think that's far more important in terms of in terms of um, production on the field and outcomes in the NFL than than these esoteric psychological things which I know is, is a kind kind of controversial for me to believe uh, coming from a sports psych background but I think that that the things that like um, what Scott measured in the AIQ like reaction time processing speed those read and react drills um, how hard you work though, though you know in terms of learning the system, those are the things that are the most important. And then when we start getting into, you know, coping with stress and, and team dynamics and, um, and things like that, you know, that's, that's at the margins. Uh, it's mostly, I think, um, the things that we've basically been mentioning here already. Okay. Well, Steve, I want to come back to you on something. I'm looking through my notes on our conversation here. We threw around a couple of uh, acronyms in TAP and HRT. And the reason I brought those up originally was in the organizations that I worked for, they all had some personality inventory that they had subscribed to that they were collecting. One of the questions that came up in the original conversation between Danny and Ryan was, what could we do with the combine, right? That was the, from, from those kind of evaluating 
NFL processes, what could be done in the collection of information, such as an event like the Combine, to learn more about these players, maybe even in an on-field capacity. What I wanted to ask you was, some of our listeners are not going to have any idea what TAP or HRT basically are or what they you know have been doing for teams could you shed a little light on that yeah you know um, i'm more than happy to kind of like like touch on it um i I will let um i think actually brian may be better to answer um the specificity around that and then also maybe address some of the different tests that are actually out there because um so i mean tab and hrt i mean essentially what they are is you know they're they're um, tests that were built by um, psychologists, consultants is the best way to put them, um, and they you know they build a test that is specific for the NFL and specific for football and also specific for for you know honestly sports in general uh, to be honest. Um, so there's still not necessarily even like the complete focus on the NFL with both of those tests because they are used in in, in multiple sports. Um, um, even though I think even like their their creators would say that maybe necessarily that's not necessarily the best way to do it um now the issue that so so those tests um are essentially you know they're given through uh and there's and there's a lot of other tests that are out there as well and there's a number of different formats to give out these tests i mean there's a few that you know we've used in the past called the mab2 and um um, a number of other ones that i think have potentially higher validity um and these tests are typically given anywhere between you know a 30 minute 60 minute um block um, the bespoke ones are typically, and it's either through an interview format or it's literally just sitting down and doing like a multiple choice, uh, type questionnaire. Um, and then there's also some free writing and some different things associated with some of the different tests. Now, some of the other things that are out there as well, is there's a, there's a company that uses, uh, the Ravens matrices, which if, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you can go ahead and Google Ravens matrices really quick and you can take the test yourself. And it's basically a pattern recognition test. Um, it's been used with quarterbacks extensively in trying to uh, suss out pattern recognition ability in specific positions inside the NFL. So there's a whole litany of these tests, and they're all given um, in different ways, and they're all been designed in silos by you know one, two, three different people, um, whatever it is, or companies that are looking to go out into the marketplace and sell a tool to um, to teams. Now the interesting thing that I've always thought, um, like the, the, so the tap, you know, there's really like a you know a, 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 there were a couple of different teams that had used tap, um, and then what always ends up happening is when one of those teams becomes successful. Um, the maker of the tests, um, whether it be TAP, HRT, or whoever, they immediately say, well, look at what we were able to do for that team. That team's success is, you know, not entirely because of us, but, you know, we were a part of their success. And so what ends up happening is, honestly, a lot of these tests start with two or three different teams, and then all of a sudden, if one of those teams are successful, then five, 10, 15 of those teams have it. Because the NFL, and sports in general, is very much a mimic league. Um, you know, if something works for somebody else, we're going to try and do it. That's what you're seeing this, you know, this advent of sports science. You're seeing a couple different teams who have experimented with GPS units and, you know, working in sports science. And now you see every single team going out, buying a GPS unit and then saying, look, we have a sports science program where that is not what a sports science program is. And it's like the farthest thing from a sports science program. Um, and so that's what ends up happening with a lot of these different tests is that they, they get into you know, a subset of teams and they end up getting used. Now, the thing I've always thought that would be really interesting, the smart teams, the really smart teams, um, if, they, if they were really thinking through this, what they would do is they would say, hey, we're using, we're using this one specific test 
And if they knew that that test did not work, and actually maybe it had some sort of negative correlation to success on, in the NFL, but as long as they were to just say, then they, it, it, if, if they were to tell every single team in the league that they were using that test, and even though they were potentially using it and then discarding the results and not using the results at all, man, they would have a competitive advantage over every other team in the league um, who would just quickly get on that bandwagon and start using that test. Um, and that's honestly, you know, I think where some of like my skepticism for a lot of these different, um, you know, companies that are trying to work with teams really kind of comes from, um, is that they are building these really, really bespoke tests that not, have not necessarily been validated. Um, I have worked with the teams that I've worked with, we've actually done some research studies in some of these tests and we have, uh, we have cracked, we, we've, we've shown some cracks inside of a lot of these tests. Um, and there are some issues with them. And, uh, and teams typically just don't have the time to do their own due diligence on it, nor do they really have the requisite people on staff to do the due diligence on figuring out whether or not it works or doesn't work. Um, so with that, I'll, I'll actually I'll let Brian talk a little bit more about like the different tests that that are out there and some of the different ones that you know we've even used in some of the different you know projects that we've worked together on. Well, Brian, I, I definitely want to I wanted you to dive into that, but I want to frame it under a question here. Um, if you Jeff Foster retired and, and you were named the new director of National Football Scouting who runs the Combine. Is there anything that you would like to see universally applied? And obviously, if you want to dive um, around those that question, that's fine, too. Yeah, I might want to, I, I'd like to dive around that one a little bit because, you know, I don't really, I mean, I understand the role of NFS and, you know, the group administering of tests and, and the sharing of results throughout the league. Um I want to kind of avoid that one. I, I will kind of share indirectly toward that question. I think Steve brought up a good good point about like the mimicking and if somebody uses something everybody else wants to. It's not the test. It's not necessarily you can have valid and reliable tests. The key is how do you use the information that comes from it? You know, I think that's the really really big key, and I think that's why most people struggle. Is they you know I, there's there's tests out there that that have you know, they are very reliable and they're very valid. They produce great results, but so what? We still do not know how to use it as part of a holistic evaluation decision-making um, tool. You know, to kind of touch on the test just a little bit, you know, HRT, you know, Steve brought up the Ravens test of progressive matrices. Um, I believe, I, I, I'm not sure, but I believe that the intelligence portion of the HRT, HRT is actually the Ravens test of progressive matrices. It's a good test in the sense that it's a performance IQ test. It's nonverbal. It's going to get at that picture sequences, analogies, pattern recognition, uh, speed of processing. So it's going to do that. Um, the, I've not seen the data, so I can't talk about it. But the one of the, some of the better tests out there, um, they provide you with subtest scores. And what you can start looking at is you might. It's much like this. If I were to tell you, if we were trying to predict success as an engineer in college. Your high school grade point average would be a decent predictor of your success in engineering school, but your math grade would be even better. So there are subsets of intelligence that go into this performance IQ that if you use a more robust test that you can get at and you can isolate. Because I think intelligence, as I've seen in, in, my, in the work that I've done, I find that there's a lot of variation between positions and even within positions. There's, there's multiple paths to being successful. So I think the HRT has the, 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 the construct of their, their test is good. Uh, they also overlay a bunch of personality stuff in there. And my only concern is I think it's a lot of, they're trying to do a lot of stuff with a very small test. 
Uh, I have seen one version of the tap, and it had 15 questions on intelligence. And I will tell you, I, I think that's insufficient to give you a good measure of intelligence. Now, they may have other ones. They may have updated since that time. And they kind of overlaid on top of that. Part of the problems are, are a part of the reliability issues at the different types of administration. You know, if you're at the combine and you got three hours of sleep last night, or you're taking cold medicine, or you're under stress, all those things have, they're introducing variation and error into the system. So those are a lot of problems when you look at like the group administration and stuff. Listen, if I was wanting, if I was looking, let's just take the quarterback position, for instance. If I was looking for the gold standard, and I wanted to, and you could take it, I think you can extrapolate this understanding out. I think I would develop, I would find something that would measure intelligence, and it would measure relevant experience at the same time. There's a lot of work being done now in the VR space where you can get really, really high-quality uh, video, and it's 360. I would go out there, and I would start – I would basically show a clip. I would start from basically the 25 – from the time the team walked up to the line of scrimmage all the way down to the snap, and then I would turn it off. And then I would tell that quarterback, tell me what you're seeing. Tell me, tell me, tell me what kind of – what's the coverage? What are the linebacker responsibilities? Where's the pressure coming from? Tell me all of that now. You also seen the offense. Now tell me based on what, what's the offense trying to do there. And I would also give them down and distance and other situational factors that are going to begin to kind of shape or give them cues in their environment. And what I would be looking for is I would begin to try to understand and map out what is it about the ones that are really, really good, what is their level of understanding, their process, versus those that are not quite as good. And I, so that, to me, I think you could really, if you could do something like that, I think that would probably give you a better measure uh, of a player's ability to to operate early. Because listen, here's the thing: is and if you read Anders Ericsson's book on peak, who's kind of a father of of like the deliberate practice movement, he will tell you that in most fields, IQ is very very important when you're first kind of making a leap from one level to the next, or you're taking on a novel task. Because those who are smarter will begin to develop higher quality and quantities of mental representations than those who are less smart than them. But what happens is after about two years, that goes away. And then because other factors will begin to account for variation. Well, the only thing is in the league, you know, I will tell you the league being smart as a quarterback is very important because I don't think many people are going to give you two years to figure it out. So, to me, I would get smart players. I would get players that have a lot of relevant experience. And if they don't have that, I would have a development plan. But I would begin by I – would, I would create an, a way of basically putting that quarterback at the line of scrimmage and let him talk through both sides of the ball and, you know, tell him how, see how he thinks, how he's using the information. So I, I really like that idea. And, and for the quarterback position, your candidate pool – uh, smaller, you know, in terms of a draft perspective. One of the reasons I kept harping on, you know, the combine being a, an arena where many players from that candidate pool will be coming together was the idea that from a decision making standpoint, if I've only tested 30, 40% of the players that end up on my final board, the ability to leverage that grade as either, you know, pushing me towards decision-making or keeping me from it becomes difficult. And Steve mentioned the clock, you know, the access that you have to these players and creating that kind of stability. You talk about the variance, even at an event like the Combine, um, can be difficult, you know, because, of, again, the nature of the sleep and what that position group's been doing and what other meetings they had to take and what have you. 
Um, it just kind of continues to show that an individual organization has many opportunities for competitive advantages in this space if applied properly. Uh, and that's what we've, again, noted. Some teams have been working towards that, working through the R&D and doing well, and others are lagging behind. Just looking at the clock, guys, this has been a phenomenal one. We, I'm sure we can continue to go down this, but what I'd like to do here is, is kind of pivot to last words. I'd just like to give each of you, a, you know, a few seconds or whatever, 30 seconds to talk about, you know, kind of wrap up your thoughts um, from this conversation and any final points you'd like to get across. So, Steve, I'll start with you. Yeah, you know, I mean, so so I really do think that, you know, I, I think this is a great conversation to have. Um, I think it's actually, this conversation should be wrapped up in the overall conversation around um, what is happening, not only in sports psychology and in better assessments and tests to try and figure out neck up ability, um, but I think we also need to wrap it into the conversation around sports science, sports technology, um, and innovation and research and development that's happening in silos in and around sport. And one of the biggest issues you see right now is all of this is moving way too fast for the decision makers in these clubs to keep pace with, um, with advances in science, advances in um, the scientific literature, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's why these really crystallized, simple ideas like grit um, take hold is because they're, 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 simple to, they're simple, they're easy to understand, they take a complex problem and they make it digestible. Um, in the span of a vacation to read a book and to really understand it. Um, the problem is, is that when you go back and you start to try and take that one crystallized idea and you don't account for the entire ecosystem of, um, of science, technology, and, um, and everything else that's just kind of getting thrown into this, this soup, um, you have a lot of ingredients um, that, and at the end of the day, if you throw in grit, you know, the soup may not necessarily taste any better, but it's just one more thing that you've added to your plate. Um, the number one way that I think all sports teams, not even necessarily even inside of just the NFL, um, could, can really help themselves is by creating a little bit of space and a little bit of time for themselves to do their due diligence, to educate themselves, the decision makers explicitly, to create holistic systems that can not only you know attain better information, but also use um, better humans and better systems to then transfer that information from the talent assessment to the talent development phase, um, and then even into the talent sunset phase as well. And the only way that teams are going to get there is by you know really engaging people who are actually at the forefront of these spaces. Um, and it's hard to do. When you are inside the league, it's really hard to do. Um, I mean, that was basically my job when I was inside the league um, for you know, my last two years in the league was to be the outside looking person. And for every 10 great things that we saw, maybe one of them we could actually have the time to talk about, much less implement. Um, and so at the end of the day, I think it's, it's you know, the, the teams that are really smart in this space and the ones who I think are going to excel, and, and I do think that there's probably space for teams to create competitive advantages against um, other teams in all the, you know, in the NFL, um, is, is in this intelligence space, is in how do we, how are we processing all this information, how are we using emerging technologies and using, using emerging medias to our advantage to create an ecosystem where we can not only identify who are the best players for our team from an athletic ability, from a 
um, technical skill. And then, you know, I think more importantly nowadays from a mindset and from a psychological perspective, how can we not only identify them, but how can we train them and develop them into better, happier, you know, better players? Um, and I think that the teams that are doing it the best right now are slowly getting competitive advantages against the other teams. And I think we're starting to see that. Um, and I think we'll see it even more as the records will kind of play out over the course of the next five years. So, Brian, your, your final thoughts. Yeah, you know, as, as we talked about a lot today about measurements and a lot of different constructs out there, um, a lot of times we find a book or we find an item, we find something, then what we do is we really, really like it that we're trying to find some way to make it part of our collection. And, and I think that's where we, we look for, like, things that are kind of fashion, and we try to bring them back and implement them, we get in trouble. So as we look at, when, as you look to build out your program, I think you got to, the requirement has got to drive what you do. So identify a requirement, identify something that you're trying to, you're trying to answer. And then what you do is, like I said before, the, give it the three-prong test. You know, what you really have that requirement, are we asking good questions, are we getting good information, and are we making good decisions out of that? And in order to make good decisions, you've got to have that enterprise or holistic view of your organization where your, your talent acquisition, your talent development, talent, talent utilization are all lashed up. They're lashed up well. You know, I, I really feel like, you know, if we move forward, I think, um, I think there's, a, there's a lot. To, you know, I think in this space, I mean, you may only be dealing with, you know, there might be a 1% to 3% you can improve the overall evaluation process. But if you can compound that and beat your competitor by that amount each year, compounded over time, that's a competitive advantage. So I think, I think what teams should be looking for is, is in these processes, they select methods. I think you need to, based on your understanding of your team, is you need to assess for and understand what it takes to have a high-performance mindset and then take that understanding and, and continue to build. You can't just take in everything that you've done in the assessment process and bring these players into the organization and, just, and for lack of a better word, just turn them loose in the general population. You know, opportunity alone is not going to be enough to develop them. Excellent point. Excellent point. Danny, your thoughts? I'm going to steal from uh, our friend Josh Norris uh, and summarize the conversation, I think, with process the process. Uh, I think that what everybody's been talking about here uh, touches on how the NFL and teams and decision makers need to um, make their evaluation process better as it relates to uh, psychological evaluation. Um, they need to spend time, um, or more time investing in it. Uh, it sounds like, you know, it, it sounds like people have, have been saying here that, uh, that there's not a lot of time to invest in, in fi finding out what's, what's good and what's bad and, and these kinds of uh, reliability and validity things. But I think like, uh, Brian was just mentioning, like, there's a huge advantage to be gained by that, um, given how, you know, like I was saying earlier, how closely the teams are, or how close the teams are in terms of, you know, talent 1 to 53, and the teams are uh, 1 to 32. And so, there's definitely an advantage to be gained there, and the teams that figure out the right process and apply that information the right way um, are going to be the ones that, you know, make those leaps. Uh, using this stuff so process <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you well gentlemen it's been a pleasure um great conversation look forward to talking with all of you again in the future and uh, we'll see how these teams uh, take this conversation and how they apply it 
There was a lot of information shared today, but my big takeaway from this conversation is that some organizations, as always, have an opportunity and have taken advantage of that opportunity to gain a competitive advantage in a league that is designed for parity. Other organizations are lagging behind and will play catch up by mimicking the behaviors of those who have been successful. So what we've heard from each of our panelists today was basically if a team adopts a strategy for not just the one-size-fits-all mental aptitude, but an actual ingrained approach that identifies what they are looking for, and then as they go through the information, identify those who match that particular set of criterion. So their coaching, their philosophies, uh, those teams are going to really take advantage of this space moving forward. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the Football Think Tank podcast episode two, and we look forward to having you back for the rest of the series. Thank you. Have a good day.